Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5 this morning. A lot of our families are going through an awful lot of things. We've had a number of families who have lost loved ones in recent weeks. Uh, we've had different folks in the hospital, different ones with surgeries, and um, several of our folks moving. Uh, we prayed last week for Gordon and Barbara Schiefelbein. They've been trying to move across the state, and um, she was in the hospital last week, but they were able to move, and uh, they thank us for their prayers after Almost 50 years of being part of our church. Uh, we hate to see them go. They're still watching online, but we miss them. The Jenkins are moving as well. This was their last Sunday with us, Kevin and Vicki Jenkins, and uh, we'll be missing them. But let's go to the Lord in prayer before we, we come to the Word. Father, we we do bring before you so many of our in our family who, who are struggling with loss, some with uh, recovery from surgeries. I think of the Adams family and Elizabeth. Pray for healing for her. Others who uh, have moved. And and we ask your grace on each one, each family. Uh, we're thankful this morning as we celebrate with Evelyn Newhouse uh, her 100th birthday this Tuesday. Uh, what a joy that dear lady is to us. We ask your grace upon her. Father, we pray for... Uh, for our leaders, for our president, for those in in uh, Congress, in the Senate, uh, the House. Father, our world is a mess. Our country has an awful lot of stuff going on, a lot of mess. How they need wisdom. How, Father, we need godly leaders. We pray that you would bring those who don't know you to faith in you. That they might be transformed and conformed to the image of our Savior and lead our nation with righteousness and justice and wisdom and grace. Father, we pray for ourselves that we might learn from you this morning as we come to your word that we might be transformed to live more rightly as your people. And so we ask that uh, you would teach us through your spirit and your word and that we would be ready listeners and learners this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Gary Ridgway, David Lee Berkowitz, some of the most notorious, infamous murderers, in our recent history, serial killers, each one of them. And I do hope that, I'm glad you guys are sitting down. If you're at home, you might want to sit down or out in the foyer. Because for everyone listening this morning, I need to come and I need to confess this morning that I am also a murderer. In fact, I'm a serial killer. Before you call 911, put down your phones, because there's a little more that needs to be said this morning. See, as your pastor, I'm privileged to some information. The reality is, before we are finished this morning, we're going to expose that there are more murderers and serial killers out among us this morning. We're continuing today here in Matthew chapter 5. 
in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is teaching and speaking to His followers, to those of us who name His name, who say we believe in Jesus, we're trusting Him as our Savior. And He's giving to us instructions how we are to live as His followers. And what He has to say is astonishing and shocking. He turns many of our preconceived notions, our preconceived ideas, He turns them upside down. And if you found my confession this morning a bit shocking, a bit astonishing, then you've received just a small taste of how Jesus' listeners that morning on the mountainside, what they experienced and what they felt as Jesus spoke that day. As it says at the end of the sermon, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 21 here in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, actually, you say, Pastor, there is not a thing shocking there. I would agree. This is the law we know. Do not murder. Jesus said, you've heard it said. This was nothing new. He goes back and he quotes from the Old Testament. He goes back to, to the book of Exodus chapter 20 to the eighth of the tenth commandments. The eighth commandment is, you shall not murder. Jesus goes on after that and he he says, if you violate that commandment, there are uh, there's consequences. Again, continuing to verse 21, whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. In the Ten Commandments, the consequence doesn't follow right there. But if you go through the Old Testament law, you will find that there's trials there's and there is potentially execution. You find an example of that, and we won't turn there this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. Jesus simply summarizes it. Whoever commits murder will be liable to the judgment. And it describes there a court scene and, and the standards that are there. Even long before the Ten Commandments were given, long before Moses and Mount Sinai, when you look back into the book of Genesis, right after the flood, God spoke to Noah. And God said to Noah that this was a standard, that murder is wrong. And God said, and from each man too, each man also, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. See, God says that, Murder is wrong because God made man in His own image. And while we do find that through, when we go through the Old Testament, we do find that, that killing was permitted under certain circumstances. For example, in self-defense, it is permissible to, to defend yourself and to kill if necessary. But the penalty for the consequence for murder as it says here, is capital punishment. It's death. 
Jesus, in quoting here from the Old Testament law, affirms what we all know and we all agree with. Murder is bad. Murder is wrong. But then Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, but I say to you. Now he's not about to contradict. He's not about, he's not about to go against the Old Testament law. Rather, what he's about to do is to correct, to aim to change our wrong thinking and restore for us the original intent of the law. And we think of the law, again, as being given by God to Moses and then from Moses to the people. Jesus, we know, is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. Jesus is God who gave the law originally to Moses. Jesus is the great lawgiver, and so who better to explain what the law really means than the one who gave it in the first place? And so Jesus is about to set us right about this law. And as He does so, he, He's going to give us a perspective, He's going to give us a breadth of understanding that we never anticipated. He's going to give us the understanding that we didn't expect. And he's in the process, he's going to teach us a lot about murderers. See, the reality is, brothers and sisters, that I've had lunch with men from this church who are murderers. Men who murdered their wives. Men who murdered their bosses. I have talked with young people who have murdered their parents, murdered their teachers, murdered their classmates. I've talked with women in this church who have murdered their husbands, who murdered their neighbors. And yet not one of them has been executed. Not one of them has been put into prison for these murders because there was no physical evidence. There was no physical evidence because there was no physical crime. The truth is, is that Jesus, as he was about to explain, most murders are not committed with guns or with knives or with poison or even with our hands. And they don't leave a dead body behind. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus just told us, something we didn't see coming unless we've heard it before from him. That is that the crime of murder is more than just the physical taking of life. There is murder without killing. Jesus goes on then to give us three examples of how we murder without weapons. The first way we murder without weapons is, he says here, that we murder in our heart. Whoever is angry with his brother, he says, will be liable to judgment. Anger along with its cousins, 
Things like hatred and bitterness and jealousy and malice. Anger is the internal attitude behind the external action of violence and murder. We know that most murders are crimes of passion. And the the root of that passion, what drives that passion is anger. And so Jesus says that this command against murder actually reaches back and is applied to the root of the crime, to the root of the sin. That this command against murder goes back to anger. It applies to the root cause. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 gives the principle behind this where it says, keep or guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. To put that in more common everyday terms for us, what's in our heart matters because what's in our heart shows up in our actions. Our actions are driven by what's in our hearts. So that even if it is never expressed, even if the objects of our anger, of our hatred, even if they never know what's in our mind, it is still murder. That's what Jesus just said. That's why the Bible is full of warnings against anger. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Don't be in a hurry to get angry. If you are, if you do, you're a fool. Hmm. James chapter 1 says, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If it's in your, if you you say, I want to be righteous, I want to do what's right, anger shouldn't be on your list. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Colossians 3 says this, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. From your lips. We need to get rid of these things. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is such a thing as anger that is not sin. That is true. Here's Ephesians 4. It says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. See, it is possible to be angry, he says, and not sin. One example would be Jesus. Jesus was angry. Twice in his ministry, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry, he went into the temple, you recall, and there were all these people there who were, who were abusing the temple. They had set up a mini mall selling sacrifices and selling things and charging exorbitant prices and gouging people and cheating people. And Jesus went in and He cleared out the temple. He was angry, yet He did not sin. While it's possible to sin without being angry, I would say that for the most part, most of us, most of the time when we're angry, 
is sinful. It is not righteous anger. Because our anger tends to be self-focused rather than focused on honoring God and focusing on the good of others. Most of our anger is all about us. Most of our anger is destructive rather than constructive. Most of our anger involves losing our temper rather than maintaining self-control. Most of our anger tends to linger where he says, don't, don't let the sun go down on your, on your anger. Why? Because it gives the devil an opportunity to bring up other things like bitterness and hatred. Most of our anger is not short-lived, it lingers. We could go on, but most of our anger is simply not righteous anger. And that's why the Bible is so full of warnings. Put anger away. Let's be done with that. Let us not deceive ourselves that this is no big deal. (laughs) I mean, I thought it was a big deal when you said you were a murderer, but when I realized you're talking about this inward stuff, this anger, murder, you know, that's not a big deal because we all do that. It's no big deal if everybody does it, right? No, Jesus says it's serious, serious stuff. See, thankfully, the physical consequence of murder, you know, Capital punishment isn't enacted every time we do heart murder. Or there wouldn't be anybody preaching here today, and there wouldn't be anybody preaching here today to an empty crowd, because it would be an empty audience. Jesus says, no, it is a big deal. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Ooh, now let's think about that a minute. How many of us have committed murder in our heart? How many of us have had anger towards someone? Hatred towards someone? And he just says, no, murderer has eternal life in him. And we go, oh. It's a black and white statement. John makes lots of those in his little book. The point is this. True, every sin, by the way, is a mortal sin. It condemns us to hell. It's only by the grace of God that we can ever get to heaven. It's by Jesus has paid the price for us. He's taken our sin upon Him. And thankfully, those of us who committed murder can go to heaven, but not because of our goodness, but because of God's grace. So is it no big deal then? Well, what, it, what he's making the point is murder and eternal life They don't go together. They are incompatible. And the point is, in that black and white statement is this, if if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're comfortable with the fact that you're committing murder in your heart today or yesterday or tomorrow, and you think it's no big deal, you got a problem. Because either you are a true believer who is living in sin and excusing it, and that makes you really spiritually sick. Or else you're not a believer at all. If you're really comfortable with committing murder, then he gives you good reason, it's the point there in John, to question whether you are a believer at all. Convicting stuff. May I say, by the way, if you are here this morning 
and you're an angry person, you need help. You either need to come to faith in Jesus Christ, or if you're already a believer, you need. there's things that need to change in your life. You need to come talk to me or one of our elders or someone else here in the church. Start working together so the Spirit of God can change you. May I say that this is one thing that God had to deal with in my own life. And He changed about 40 years ago, 50 years ago, to be honest. Big deal. We murder in our hearts with our anger. But Jesus says there's another way we murder without weapons. We murder with our words. He goes on, still in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. If you're reading a different translation, maybe the NIV or the uh, King James or... Some of the others, I like the way they do it. This, the ESV kind of explains it, but I, I like the way they say. Let me read from the NIV. It says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the council or the Sanhedrin. What they do is they say, if anyone says to his brother, and they just take the Greek word and translate it into English. And it's an insult, which is why the ESV, if anyone insults his brother. Okay? But here's, here's the word, Raka literally translates like this, empty head. So in other words, it's saying to somebody, you airhead, you pinhead, you idiot, you dummy, you numbskull, you got rocks for brains. You heard that kind of stuff? You said that kind of stuff? Been the receiving end of that kind of stuff? Yeah. He says, insults like that, they're murder. They're murder. Murder kills physical life. Words like that destroy lives. They don't take physical life, but they destroy lives. Hurtful, insulting words destroy relationships. They destroy marriages. They destroy friendships. They destroy families. Words, hurtful, insulting words like that kill people's spirit. They will rob people's joy. If you have been on the receiving end of an insult like that, you know how it is. Your joy is destroyed. They destroy security. In a place where you should be safe, if at home you are barraged with insults, you no longer feel safe and good there, do you? They crush people's dignity, their sense of worth, of value. What I have observed through my years is that tragically, the victims of these insulting words are most often the people who should receive our very best words. The people whom we say we love, our husband, our wife, our children, our parents, they are the ones most often on the receiving end of insulting words. And it is a senseless and a great tragedy in homes where that happens. 
destroys people, destroys relationships. Insulting talk like that, Jesus says, should never come from the mouths of His followers. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says, Let no... If I were writing this verse down, I would capitalize N-O. No, not any, not one. Corrupting word come out of your mouths. But only what is good for building up. Wow. How our world needs to hear it, but how we need to hear this. The words that come out of our mouths need to be words that build up, not words that tear down. Because Jesus says that the words that tear down, the insults, that talk is murder. It deserves to be called up before the council, or as some translations say, the Sanhedrin. It's talking about, to put it in our day and time, it deserves to be taken to the Supreme Court. That's how serious of an offense it is. And again, it's easy for us to say, oh, everybody talks that way. Well, we shouldn't as followers of Jesus. It's murder. Jesus continues. Verse 22, the last part. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Many commentators, many teachers view this as simply an extension of the last thing. It's more words of insult. And that may be exactly all that Jesus is saying here. And while airhead is insulting somebody's intelligence, you fool is attacking somebody's character, their nature. It may be just a, a, another little insult. And that may be the case, but I, and I may be going beyond the text here. But as I thought about this verse this week, and I thought about this phrase, and I thought back to how the word fool is often used in Scripture. Sometimes the word fool is used a little more commonly as we do, but very often the word fool in Scripture applies to someone who is a fool before God. For example, it says several times in Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And God sometimes will say to someone, you fool, even as he pronounces judgment upon them. See, very often in Scripture, this phrase, you fool, is a person who is coming under the judgment of God, the condemnation of God because of their foolishness, their wicked foolishness. And I am very inclined to think that what Jesus is saying here is yes, we, we often murder people with our words, but sometimes we go beyond that and we murder people with our judgment. Where we self-righteously look at others and put ourselves above them and look at them and go, you worthless person condemned by God. And we hear it almost every single day Multiple times a day, if you live in this world, walk around, if you listen to TV and radio and whatever, or the, get on the internet, you hear people constantly, damn them, damn you. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. 
whether we use those words or insinuate it in some other way, where we condemn people, Jesus says that is liable to the fires of hell. In other words, what you're condemning others to is what you deserve. Because who of us is worthy to condemn anyone? The answer is none of us. We are all guilty ourselves. You know, vitriolic condemning talk has always been around. And it's always been wrong. Maybe it's just me, but it sure seems that in our day, in the last few decades, it has reached epidemic proportions. It's bad enough how people talk to one another in person. But then how we get on the internet and on social media, it's even worse. So many folks in our day, including many Christians, we, we monitor and we, we restrain our talk somewhat when we talk to people in person. For some reason, for some reason, somehow, when people get on social media, all the restraints seem to fall off. And people say the most horrid things, as if somehow it doesn't count. If I only type it instead of speak it. If we belittle and humiliate and make fun of others with our words, And if we judge and condemn others and then go around saying that we are followers of Jesus Christ, shame on us. Shame on us. Jesus calls for you and me to be radically different than this world around us. And in fact, He calls us in the last few verses here, to some steps that are beyond simply not being murderers. He said here, don't commit murder. And let me tell you, murder is more than just dead bodies. Murders is our attitudes. Murders is our words. Murders is our judgments, our condemnation of others. But He calls us here now to a different path. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We hear that and we first think, well, what does that have to do with not murdering anybody? Well, it's interesting. Jesus begins that verse 23 with the little word, so. That ties it right back to what he just said. There's a connection here he wants us to see. Jesus is calling us in this to something different. He's calling us to reconciliation. The interesting thing here is that in this case, we're the party who's done wrong. We've been doing the wrongdoing. And He says, when we've done wrong, we need to fix it. And I think the connection here is that not only are we to be the people who don't murder others, We're in the business of helping prevent murders. In this case, helping prevent people from murdering us with their attitudes and their words. See, somebody has something against us. 
And he says, here's the picture. That one day you come to church and you come in and, you know, again, we're in our Sunday best and, and we're all, oh, I'm so glad to be here today. And we greet everybody and we sit down and the music starts playing. We're singing the songs and we brought our offering. We're going to give the Lord and, and we're ready to offer our praises. And, and while things are going on, it slaps us upside the head. I offended my wife this morning. Or it slaps us upside the head. I lost my temper with my son yesterday, last night. Or it slaps us upside the head. You know, Friday I called my neighbor an airhead. <laughs> or and I just deliberately didn't return so-and-so stuff when I promised I would. Or I didn't pay back this loan or this debt. Or I didn't do this or I didn't do that. And it occurs to us that a relationship is either broken or a relationship is in jeopardy because of something that I did or something that I didn't do. And he says, when we come to that realization, he says, we're to drop our offering. We're to drop our stuff. Leave your Bible. Leave your stuff. Head out the door. Pick up the phone. Do whatever it takes. Go make it right. So he said, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Fixing our wrongs is more important than worship. Why? Because, as the Scripture says, if we do not love our neighbor whom we do see, how can we love God whom we do not see? We can't be right with God when we are deliberately, knowingly in the wrong with people. So he says, get up, go fix it, then come back. God is interested more in our heart than he is in our actions of worship. Jesus says, settling your account, fixing your wrongs is important, more important than worship. Do that first, then come back. Then he moves on to a second example, verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This time, in this example, the problem isn't a brother. In other words, it's not somebody close to us. It's not your husband, your wife. It's not your friend. It's not your, your uh, fellow believer, your other churchgoer, your neighbor necessarily. Even. He says it's an accuser. It's an adversary. It's somebody else out there. And whatever the wrong is between you, he's taking you to court. And obviously he thinks you're at fault because he's taken you to court. And Jesus says, on e you need to, before you get there, even if it's down to the last minute, you need to go on the way to court and you need to try to settle this. You need to try to fix it before you get there. Try to fix matters, he says. Work to solve disputes quickly and personally. Don't wait till you get to court and wait for the judge to solve it. For one thing, Jesus says, you may not like the outcome. You probably won't like the outcome. I think it was uh, Charles Spurgeon who said, better a lean settlement than a fat lawsuit. 
He's right. You know, ultimately, by the way, we're all on our way to court. Every one of us is going to stand before God. We're not to leave matters unsettled. We're to deal with them quickly. As my pastor always used to say, keep short accounts. When something's wrong between you and someone else, go to fix it. Especially if you're the one in the wrong. Fix it quickly. Fix it personally. That's what Jesus is saying. Ultimately, whether you and I are the offender or the offendee, Jesus is calling us to a different path than the rest of the world takes. First, we are not to be murderers. We are not to harbor anger, hatred, bitterness in our heart. We are not to lash out with our words. We are not to condemn with our judgments. And we are also supposed to be those who work to mend relationships. You know what Jesus just did? He took us right back up to the earlier part of the sermon, to verse 9, the seventh of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who are going to make things right, whether again, whether we're the offender or the offendee. We're not going to leave some offense out there, something that we did wrong. We're not going to leave it unfixed. And then as, as so much as is possible, the, the rest of the Scripture says, says later on, we're to live at peace with all men. In so far as it's possible with us, we're to be peacemakers. It means people who refuse to hold on to hurts and hold on to grudges and hold on to anger. To even be people, again, as he called us in the, in the Beatitudes, to be people who are willing to let go of our rights. To be people who are meek, that's what that meant. And to be people who are merciful who give grace to people who don't deserve it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. This is radical stuff. It's not easy. But Jesus says, this is the way that I want you to live as my followers. And after all, it's exactly the way God has dealt with us. We are sinners who deserve hell. But God did not hold that offense, the offense of our sin against us. What He did was He loved us. And He provided a way to pay for our sin. He sent Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay for our sin, rose again to provide new life, and He offers it all as a gift to us if we simply say, Thank you, God. I recognize I am a sinner. I am guilty. And I deserve hell. But I trust Jesus as my Savior. And God gives us life. Having received that kind of grace, how can we live as murderers? The sad thing is, so many times Christians do. Father, here it is, all laid out for us this morning in black and white. What amazing things. We love your grace. We celebrate that. We cheer about it. We, we sing praises. And then how, how frequently we fail to give that grace to others, to extend it to them. And we end up being murderers in our hearts and with our words. But it ought not to be so. Forgive us for that, Lord. 
but even more than that, change us. May we instead be those who are the peacemakers, the people who overflow with grace, so that then other people will see Your grace in us and they'll want to know, why are You like that? We can say it's because I received such grace from God through Jesus. Would, and, we, and they may come to faith in Christ. So Father, may these things, all these good things be true of us this week. Both for our good, for the good of those around us, and most especially for your glory. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.